embrace all the higher qualifications you possibly can um, and try and persuade people to fund you for it and try and make a return on the back of it. Welcome to the OT podcast, which takes a deep dive into the topics affecting optometry today. Each time we'll find a real expert in their field and attempt to pull everything we can out of their brain so it may reside in yours. This is the eighth episode in the series and we're recording on the 20th of November 2023. You can listen to the other episodes on the OT website, on Apple, Spotify or wherever you usually get your podcasts. My name's Kerry Smith-Janes. I'm the Clinical Multimedia Editor for Optometry Today. I'm also an optometrist in independent practice in Lancashire. And I'm Ian Beasley, Head of Education for the AOP, also Clinical Editor for Optometry Today and a visiting lecturer at Aston University. And today we're joined by Nick Romney, who's an optometrist and owner-director of BBR Optometry in Hereford. But before we, we speak to Nick, Kerry, I think it's a good opportunity for us to give our current CPD offering a plug. Anything that's caught your attention? Oh, yes. Um, so on the 13th of January, we are launching some new clinical interpretation articles. Um, I say articles, but we've moved the what used to be called VRIX um, or image interpretation. We've moved it to purely online. And the reason for that is we're now featuring video content. The one that caught my eye particularly um, this month is by Drew Thompson. And if you're in the Lancashire area, you'll know Drew as being the cornea guy. And he's uh, produced a set of corneal cases. So the um, CI is called corneal cases. Um, so there's a number of video clips. It's approved for IP points as well. So you can get your specialist points by uh, interpreting those videos. You may have to read around the topic, do a little bit of research and then uh, answer the questions um, pertaining to each video. Um, so that's a lot of fun. We've still got practice team training live as well. Um, so this is not just directed at the professional staff, but also everybody in your practice team. So you, they can all create an account on the Optometry Today website and then they can log in and watch um, a set of four practice team training videos. So we've got topics like dispensing, contact lenses, teamwork, social media management. And at the end of each one, they can answer a set of MCQs and then they can get a certificate just to show that they've done the training as well. And what about you, Ian? For me, I would say the standout article is probably one that we have from Yasmin Wyde from Aston University on ethical considerations of myopia management. So that looks at why we should be looking at trying to regulate progression of myopia in children how we do that and when we should do it and in particular there's a real emphasis on the conversation side of myopia management with with patients and their parents which I think is probably the trickiest aspect of of myopia management so that's a really interesting read for those that are looking to get started in myopia management. Yeah it's a great article. Should we uh, introduce our guest then? Sure so um, it's a real pleasure to have Nick Romney join us today. Um, Nick is an optometrist owner-director of BBR Optometry in Hereford. He's an independent prescriber, a fellow of the College of Optometrists, and past president of the European Academy of Optometry and Optics. And in October, Nick was also appointed to the GOC Investigation Committee. Thank you for for joining us this morning and for taking some time out to talk to OT. We've given our listeners a a brief flavour of what you've been doing over the past several decades in the profession, but it doesn't cover that sort of full scope of, of the, your achievements and some really interesting bits and bobs that you've done over the years. Now, you qualified in, in 1981, so maybe if we, we go back to that point in time and if you could just perhaps share a whistle-stop tour of, 
of, of where you've headed from there? There is an interesting aspect in that I'm third generation, but I'm the only one of the three generations that actually chose to do optometry. The others, my father and my grandfather, were kind of either dropped into it or didn't really have a lot of choice. I chose it as something I thought I vaguely knew about for two reasons. One, obviously, you know, as a little boy, I would go into my dad's consulting room and press the buttons to make the Snellen chart lights up. And then as I got a little bit older, I would shuffle the lenses around so they were in the wrong slots because that was just like a nice thing to do. But of course, I had a fairly major eye injury at the age of five and spent probably every six months standing in in the old classical eye department where you had the consultant on a dais kind of raised up in a main kind of amphitheater hall with the kind of the, the progression of, of senior registrar, registrar, SHO, et cetera, on slightly lower and lower levels. To be honest, I don't remember much about what was actually done until I got to about 14 I'd been on quite high doses of Diamox to control a, a reactive rise in intraocular pressure because of the original injury. And ultimately, that was quite painful. And, and they kind of said, look, we think we should enucleate. We should take the eye out and, and go to a prosthetic eye. And that was a really interesting element because I was absolutely relieved. Okay, it was a feeling of, wow, okay, at least we're going to do something. That's going to stop. But I could see in the consultant's eyes and also with my dad that it was a real heart sink moment. And that's been very interesting because it's lived with me through seeing patients who are monocular or who have blind, disfigured, painful eyes. And I've kind of said to them sometimes, how would you feel about if that were removed and you were given a more cosmetic, less painful kind of alternative? And they've kind of said, well, nobody's ever asked. And it is a very funny thing. There are very few ophthalmologists that are comfortable with suggesting that as a, as a course of action. So completely ignoring your first question, one, one of my tenets through life is I've always felt a very sort of paternalistic viewpoint of people with one eye coming in to have their eyes examined. Somewhat frivolously, they will sometimes say, well, shouldn't I pay half the examination fee because you're only doing one eye? And I say, no, it's twice as important. So they double. Um, <laughs> um, but okay, so there I was at Cardiff. I'd actually not done well in my first A-level pass and was due to go to Aston in 76 and didn't make it. So I had to take a year. The alternative would have been to go and do something like zoology at Clearing, and, and I really couldn't see the point. So within that year, I upgraded my physics sufficiently to get a BC offer at Cardiff and started in 77. But what was also interesting was that at about 13 or 14, I was working in my uncle's prescription house. So I was neutralizing lenses, blocking up, setting a Wico machine, checking and setting lenses on a facimeter for about six or seven years before I ever got to uni. You know, you can't believe how easy going through dispensing was in the first part. And that's kind of lived in me even to the modern day, where I think I surprise my DO colleagues sometimes by having slightly more technical, technical knowledge than they expect of your average optometrist. But of course, being at uni meant that I had to make a decision to, as to where to go for pre-reg. And I suppose I wasn't really well formed in my thoughts, but knowing what practice was like, my dad's practice, I guess, 
And I'd done some holiday work actually in DNAs in, um, in Wolverhampton doing basic kind of reception dispensing duty. So I, I decided I would go for a hospital placement. And at that time, there wasn't a, it was all done on an individual basis. There wasn't a kind of almost like a central UCAS clearing system for hospital optometry pre-regs, which did ultimately develop. I'm not sure whether it's still operational. And I went over to Bristol. The funny thing is, I, I was pre-regged to a, to a supervising optometrist called uh, Fred Giltrow-Tyler, who's, who's well known for the time he, he spent both in that hospital and also working in conjunction with the AOP in the early days of shared care schemes. But he did two things. He taught me to not so much question authority, but sort of seek evidence. And that was at all levels. He got me my first subscription to Private Eye magazine, which I've read ever since. And, you know, whenever I read the newspapers or listen to the media outside of the world of optometry, my first thing is, if that story is true, who benefits? And who could have placed that story? And what's the machinations behind it? And, and it's kind of an interesting approach to life. You could call it cynical, but I, I, I don't think so. I think it's realistic. So I worked in Bristol, and it was f- funny because it was the first time they'd had a pre-reg, so they didn't really know what to do with me. So they put me in the basement next to the um, all the uh, fluorescent angiographic uh, facilities that used to go on there. So every so often you'd hear a thump from next door as, as some patient went into anaphylaxis, and they had to call the crash team. There's no doubt that working within that hospital environment gives you a kind of a hierarchical structure that means there's always people that to talk to, to ask questions of who are either at your level or above. And if you, you know, if you get the right people, they make time for you and you learn. So I learned an awful lot about RGP contact lens fitting from a guy called Dick War. Dick War was actually a Bristol independent practitioner, predominantly did contact lenses. So one of the first people probably in the UK optometry scene who was specializing as opposed to being a generalist. But the other interesting thing he did was um, just the tail end of the Second World War and into the into the 40s, he flew Spitfires with the RAF. So I found lots of other things to talk about with him. And now I, I kind of wish I'd spent even more time um, in between patients talking about flying airplanes, but I didn't. So that was my start in life, was, was Bristol Eye Hospital. We have something in common, actually, Nick, because... Um... I was, I was fortunate to spend a bit of time with Fred Giltrow-Tyler as I think I must have been a first-year undergrad and, and Fred happens to be my mum's cousin. Oh, okay. And so he invited me to spend a bit of time with, with him in, in, in some paediatric clinics at Bristol. I think I spent a couple of days there. And, and something I think quite important that Fred taught me was it's okay sometimes to not necessarily do an amazing job with the kid in the chair because they just wriggle and you, you just can't managed to get a result from them. And I just found his approach quite refreshing. It was kind of interesting there. He, he also taught, if you know you're right, you need to kind of make the case. And I remember one particular case was a, a kind of a bit of a rush job. He, he was actually away. And uh, when you're the pre-reg optom, your next putative supervisor is actually one of the ophthalmologists in the, in, in the clinic. And they brought this patient down who was not, didn't have an appointment and just come out of clinic. And it was actually a child coming down from theater who was listed for surgery for esotropia. And somebody in theater had realized they'd never had a refraction. 
And so they came down and I looked at the orthoptic notes. And that was another thing that was always interesting. Orthoptists write in a very, they've always got very neat handwriting and they always write in a very formulate way. And it becomes incredibly easy to read. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, well, what's the refraction? And, and this child refracted as something like plus 450 right and left equal. And I had to kind of go back to the consultant who sent them down from theatre to say, this is behaving like a fully accommodative strab. I really don't think you want to operate on this, do you? And I was 21 years old. I was six months into the process. And, and he said, no, we don't. Thank you very much. And he was not at all on his high horse. And he was, obviously, that's why he'd sent them down for refraction. And that was another interesting thing that taught me that there is no hierarchical concept of correct. In other words, just because a consultant doctor says something doesn't actually mean that's automatically right. And I've had instances where, you know, there were certain patients that I would see that if I needed something doing like a tight suture relaxed and somebody that just had an intraocular lens operation, bear in mind, this is really days, 81, 82, there was still a lot of non-pseudophagic surgery taking place. And I would think, well, this this person's got something like an eight diopter cylinder post-operatively and checking on the keratometer, it's clearly corneal and that suture looks really tight. But there were one or two registrars I would take the patient round to and say, could you do something about this? And there were one or two registrars I wouldn't because I, I didn't feel comfortable with their outcomes. And of course, <laughs> some of those went on to become consultants, which is kind of a bit, a bit scary, but it gave me a sense of there are some things that we as optometrists know well and can do well. And, and things like at that time, being able to do undilated fundoscopy, even though it's frowned upon nowadays, even by me, undilated fundoscopy is a direct telescope. But it's amazing what in the good hands of a good optometrist you can find and how some of the, you know, the basic techniques in controlling refraction without psychopedia when you can't or don't want to use it. We're actually quite good at doing these things and we shouldn't hide from that. And that, that comes back to your point about Fred teaching you the basics. Um, there's nothing wrong with the basics. So perhaps you could um, talk a little bit about your journey to owning your own practice then, because you're also IP qualified, but then you, you ended up owning BBR in Hereford. So I didn't start there till, till 1991. So that's 10 years after I had qualified. And I probably have to go back a step because when I qualified in, uh, in Bristol in 81, 82, it's probably fair to say Britain was in a pretty um, grey situation. First of all, we were, we were fighting a war 8,000 miles away. The economy looked like it had tanked. The jobs were not particularly attractive. I didn't have a place at the eye hospital. And I, I joined a very small group practice in Bristol. There were about six practices across the Bristol area. And my salary was £7,900 a year. You might want to bank that. That's quite interesting. I worked with them for about six months and thought, do you know what? I'm not convinced in which direction I want to go in. And I'd also made a mistake, I think, in my final year of being unduly cocky. And I really hadn't worked hard enough to get a good enough degree. So I came out of Cardiff with the famous Desmond Tutu. That closed the door for higher, higher degree research in the UK. 
So you were only really getting a PhD place if you were first or two one. I didn't know what to do from that point of view. And then I bumped into an ex-girlfriend who was also going to be the pre-reg at Bristol. And she told me about how she'd been looking at the possibility of going out to Australia to do some work and to attach to a university out there. I went off and um, I looked in what was then the IOOL yearbook, which people might remember, but it was like an optical desk diary. Often it was used by practices for their actual appointment diaries. But in the front of it, it had the names and addresses of all of the schools of optometry all over the world. And I wrote to the three heads of department in, in uh, Melbourne, Brisbane and Sydney, and I got a reply from Melbourne. And over the next six to eight months, we kind of prepared the case, got the transcript of my course, found various grant source funding, etc. And I flew out in June 82. And whilst I was there, I was exposed to the first of the really mentoring private practitioners who were really at the top of the game. So this in particular was a, a, a practice run by a guy called David Coburn and his colleague Ian Guttridge. David Coburn's no longer with us, but Ian Guttridge is. They taught at the Melbourne Uni at the, at the Victoria College of Optometry Clinics, but they had their own private practice and they set a standard that was sky high from what I'd seen in my limited time in, in UK optometry practice. And so they were quite inspiring. I did my master's degree. I, I worked in the area of low vision. And then for one kind of or two personal reasons that uh, we don't need to go into, I came back from Australia in late 84 and eventually submitted and got my master's in 86. And at that point, I went back to Cardiff to do uh, more research work and started another project working with Margaret Woodhouse and Susan Leet. Economically, I needed a bit more income and I was just married at that time. So I picked up a job in um, a couple of places in Aberdare in the valleys uh, and in Abergavenny. And they were with practices and I, I kind of kept, all the time I was there, kept thinking, do you know what? If it was my practice, I'd do this. If it was my practice, I'd do that. And it wasn't that they were bad practices. They were very good practices. They're good, solid optometry practices. But then I had a, a chance meeting in a pub, and it often happens like that. There was a meeting of the forerunners of the WCO in Cardiff. And my ex-boss from Melbourne, a guy called Ian Braden, had come over. He and his wife, we, we kind of met up and we walked the dog around the park in Cardiff. And he said, so we'll come out for one of the social events. And as I was out at the social event, I met an optom who basically said, look, there's a practice position going nearby to here within commutable distance from Cardiff almost. And it's a very well-respected practice. You might want to look at possibility of working there and being a partner. And that was Peter and Angela Bishop's practice in Hereford. Now, I knew of that practice and actually so did almost everybody else because Angela Bishop had been one of the first people to really put a marker down that optometry could do an awful lot more in paediatrics. Um, she had a lot of mental support from a local ophthalmologist, which was relatively rare. She'd actually gone on and qualified as an orthoptist after doing her optometry. So I heard about the practice. I went up and looked at it. And as I walked through the door and I looked into these consulting rooms, they were almost facsimiles of David Coburn's and Ian Guttridge's practice in, in Melbourne. 
They had dilating drops on all the desks. They had indirect ophthalmoscopy. They had really good slit lamps. And it was like, not like walking into a British or English anyway, um, optometry practice. And I thought I can find myself at home here, but what skill do I have? Because I've never run a business. I wouldn't know, you know, a balance sheet from, from, you know, to the moon. But what I could do was bring in an element of interest in low vision, which I was sure was going to be the next big demographic change. So I kind of sold myself as a sort of prospective partner saying, well, Peter Bishop, you know, you've done all the medical contact lenses in the area since the 60s. That's your particular speciality. Angela, your pediatrics, this in low vision will be the next string to the bow. And we actually, between the three of us, designed what was a specialist optometry practice with a core of doing the basics very well. And that was innovative in, in a number of different ways, one of which was that we saw the validity of almost like a menu-driven income stream based on the work that you were doing. In 1989, of course, the GOS had become defunct for two-thirds of the population. People were having private eye exams. And Peter Andrews' attitude was, let's see what everybody else is charging, and then we know we want to be better, so we're going to charge more. How will people know we're better if we don't charge more? So when everybody else was banding the £9.50, £10 eye exam, um, they went in at 15 straight away, 50% more. And we have driven that methodically and regularly up to the point where probably 45% of our income in BBR is derived from fees. The thing is, I know all these clinical things, but surely I can put my money where my mouth is and we can make an income on clinical work. We don't have to be utterly reliant upon dispensing of spectacles because why should the person that doesn't need glasses but does need a significant amount of clinical chair time, why should they be subsidized in effect by the next designer frame that you sell off the rack? And of course, if you start to get to the modern era where there is impact from the commoditization of contact lenses onto the internet, whereas there is internet or multiple supply from price point retail advertising, there is a finite point where you might think, actually, small independent practices are not going to be able to make enough money if we're not dispensing, because the dispensing has partly gone out the door. We have to make that power base on the base of our clinical skill. And so that's, that's what we did. And the other funny thing is, um, when I said earlier on, I didn't know one end of a balance sheet from another. That's true. But I could add up and I could plot graphs. And going back to those early days of 1992-93 with Peter and Angela, I kind of thought we could put a little bit more science into the business element. And somebody had given me a pirated SuperCalc spreadsheet. It predated Excel. It was before the days of Windows. And I plugged this spreadsheet in and I put our last set of accounts in. And I did a whole series of exercises one evening where I said, okay, well, what if we sold 10% more stuff? Or what if we had a different gross profit margin on product sales? Or what if we cut our overheads? And I started to see where there were two or three key drivers to a practice that would make the practice sing in terms of income. And I thought, well, that's really interesting, but I know nothing about it. So I took myself off on a finance course, cut a long story short. 
Pina and Angela were in their early 60s by about 2000, and it, it was 10 years later, it became opportunistic for them to retire and me to buy their shareholding. They'd made some astute business decisions buying a derelict junk shop and converting it into the practice. So we owned the building. That was our number two overhead after, um, after salaries. And the view was, well, you know, we're running a one and a half full-time equivalent. By the time I joined, it was became two and a half full-time equivalent. By the time uh, Peter and Angela retired, it was now three-time full-time equivalent. We currently have six optometrists and five DOs and 24 staff, and we've expanded into the building next door. And Nick, just, just thinking about that journey, is it now the, the business side of it that excites you and making that model work, or is it the ability to offer specialist services to patients or or is it just the two are inextricably linked and you get oh, well, pleasure from both for me they're inextricably linked because we have worked doggedly and very hard to fight our corner in local nhs commissioning we now have an income stream on the back of for example cues enhanced case finding in glaucoma stable glaucoma no hd monitoring uh, stable rmd discharge pediatric low vision we now generate a higher level of fee income from that than we do out of GOS site tests. So we have our GOS site tests going through, but you know we're having medical contact lens patients coming into the practice that are fitted by my colleagues, uh, by Nick and Laura primarily, not myself. I'm not in a position to say that I can do all of these things. I can do some of these things very well, but I need to delegate out to a team who are better at it, whether it be medical contents, myopic control, whatever. And seeing that as an exciting widening of scope of practice, while simultaneously making sure there are the foundations of an income stream on it that mean it carries on in perpetuity. It's no good being incredibly good at medical contents fitting if you can't make the case for deriving an income stream on the back of it. Because you go back to the point of everybody else that buys a pair of glasses is subsidizing that activity. And, you know, we, we've always kind of thought with things like equipment, let's say a new piece of it, our latest piece of equipment is a Pentacam. Now, you know, not every practice is going to have a Pentacam, fine. We have the economies of scale with six consulting rooms and probably 30 odd medical condolence patients coming to the practice every month that mean that speeds up our process of assessment so much that we can fund the Pentacam on the income stream that derives from the patients on whom we're using it. And that works for everything else, from OCT, from topography, from whatever. And I do remember, you know, the days when practices would see a piece of kit like an NCT and put it in and then think, well, I'm not making any income out of this, but it might make more people come to see me to get better eye exams. So therefore, I have a better conversion rate and I can sell more glasses. Well, well, that is a spiral uh, argument that ultimately doesn't protect the position. I was just saying, it, it um, alludes to some of the things we want to talk about later about your um, practice ethos and how it seems to be a very clinically driven practice and can you actually make that pay the bills so clearly you, you can we've done a lot of interesting things i think i mean apart from some of the very first meetings that took place in the library of our old victoria eye hospital with a senior consultant john deutsch and the local social worker for visually impaired a guy called ron jarvis myself and peter bishop 
And that set up the first low vision scheme when in the old days of FHSA back in 1994. So that predates the Welsh Principality scheme. And I think it's probably one of the longest standing from 1994 onwards to today, still, still evident um, in low vision. The beauty of that, and this is another element that I'm strongly in favour of, we get referrals from our other local optometrists because they don't find it very easy to find a role to develop that specialist interest in low vision or to be able to have the arrangements to see the patient and maybe they don't have the experience and so they refer to us. And when they refer to us, we refer them back to them for their core annual eye health check and spectacle refraction and whatever, and if they need glasses, then they go back to them for their specs. And we do that for medical contact lenses, we do it for low vision, and we've even done it for other elements. For example, if there's been a locum practitioner who's a little bit concerned about glaucoma risk, or IP, for example, we get some practices will refer to us because they haven't got an IP optometrist. And I think that reflects a non-competitive maturing aspect of the scope of practice. You know, when I first qualified, the only people you ever referred to were the GP or the ophthalmologist. And in fact, in those days, it was only the GP and they made the call on whether they went to the ophthalmologist. We've bred and cultured that non-competitive mutual respect. So when it came to COVID, we worked hand in glove with our local Specsavers director and his practice. I really don't have any side to me about style of practice. It's all about quality. It's all about if you do the right job and you know where you're comfortable, that's fine by me. You won't necessarily see arguments of multiple versus independent. I happen to prefer to work and feel comfortable in my environment in what I would probably now call a pseudo-independent because I've made the leap into seeking external support and laughing, we also think HG Hacking Group has actually merged to us so they can learn from us as to how they widen out some of the clinical elements that will be in existence in their estate of practices, but in some instances won't be. And we can help with them with that. Yeah, it was when, when you guys joined HG, I think it made everyone prick up their ears because in the, in the same year, there was a number of sort of prominent practitioners, some of which we've had on the podcast, um, suddenly joined the group. And, and, and as an outsider at the time, and I work for a group, for a practice that is in the HD group, at the time, I, my ears pricked up and I thought, hang on a minute. I thought Nick Romney and, and his practice, they've got it going on. They, they don't need help from anybody. They don't, they don't need to join a group. They're, they're, they're the business. So why, why on earth would they suddenly pull into this group model? There were a couple of reasons around that, and there were some that were very personal to the practice. I had taken the view, like Peter and Angela, that our ability to build our practice was based on our partnership with others. So I'm in partnership with, with Nick Black and with Suzanne Wadsworth. Um, Suzanne is a, a dairy girl. That TV series is very much Suzanne's growing up. Uh, Suzanne's a dairy girl who trained in Cardiff as an optometrist. I taught her low vision, I think, back in the day. And she came to us as maternity cover in 2006 and stayed and then stopped being a locum, became a partner. Nick Black is a Kiwi uh, dispensing optician who washed up in the UK, came to join us in 2000. He's a CLO, uh, DO. He's got a specialist qualification in low vision. And so we brought them in as part. They were my partners. 
Okay. But as we came into COVID, two things happened. Suzanne wasn't well uh, at the time. And Nick's father was desperately ill in New Zealand. So we reached a point in the July, June of, of the COVID year where all of a sudden I was effectively um, back on my own again. Now, we were obviously having regular Zoom meetings because everybody was. Nick, Suzanne and I came up with a plan so that we had started to reduce our vulnerable patient base from the Monday onwards. We had a couple of members of staff uh, who were also potentially vulnerable groups. So they got sent home straight away. And this was a week before lockdown. This is on Tuesday. I got sent home as, as the, um, uh, the fat, vulnerable asthmatic who may be at risk. And I, I didn't get COVID for many, many months later, but to try and kind of consolidate the business. Now, at that time, everybody was trying to work really hard. Quite rightly, the college saw the, the opportunity, and I think the AOP as well, saw the opportunity to drive the visibility of what primary care optometry could do. Maybe we were slightly later to the game. If we'd had our IPE in 10 years earlier, it would have been a more easily argued case. But they were making for that case. But it, they were not really in a position, and neither were the GOC, to advise you on how to take responsibility for employing 23 staff in a business that is nosediving. You know, and we've seen it happen in hospitality and other things. There are businesses that absolutely tanked at that time. We could have done, you know, the profession could have done if it hadn't done it properly. The first advice that we started to get that was at high level. Initially, I think the first thing we, we read was something through ABDO, which was very good on employment law. And we had access to ABDO because I'm an honorary fellow and uh, Nick's a member. But then the next thing that happened was the hacking group started doing its Better Together webinars. Mm -hmm. And they brought in people who were quite positive, either from a background in employment law or economics or whatever. And they made them free of charge for everybody in the profession. Didn't matter whether you work for Speckies or Vision Express or Independent or whatever. And there was no side to what was being presented. It was, we are all in this in, in together. And at the time, the other thing that happened was I became aware that Imran had gone and bought a hundred places for optometrists to do their IP training out of Ulster. I'd known him around for about eight to 10 years. We'd, we'd met at various business development groups. He was a guy I knew well, or reasonably well. He was someone that clearly had a good vision, and he had a good team he pulled around him. By the time we got to that July, there'd been several Better Together webinars, and we'd really started in, in earnest to have a conversation about what it might mean. Because at that time, I was 62, and I needed to plan an exit strategy. And I'd come across people who'd worked their practices to the very end and then walked out because they had to. And what tended to happen was the practices turned over the peak of performance and they're selling the practice or leaving the practice, but it's on a decline. So I reckon if you walk out cold as an independent practice owner and you know one day you own it, the next day you've sold it to somebody else and you're no longer there the next day, I reckon you're going to take a 15 to 20% hit at least on the value of that practice. You're not going to get 
the value that that practice is worth because you're needed to make that transition. And so I thought, if that's the case, and if I want to retire, let's say at 65, at 62, I need a plan. I need that three-year program. And so I fell into conversation with Imran as a friend and with Luke, who looks after his uh, mergers and acquisitions. You know, I have a, a very kind of lucky and somewhat checkered career in as much as I'll talk anything to anyone at any time. And, and I'm, I'm a bit of a networker. And so I'm, I might not always remember every single person's name at every particular opportunity. When you've done a lot of CE speaking to audiences of 100 or more, and people come up to you afterwards and say, oh, Nick, you know, I, I saw you speak at Nottingham a couple of years back, and I'm going, yeah, right, mm, okay, um, you know, can I see your name badge and that sort of thing? But I got to know quite a lot of people, and, and Luke was one, of, was one of those. And I'm kind of thinking, well, you know, Luke's made the move up to Darwin. And then I, I knew a couple of other people that were talking to Imran. There's a very, very good practice on the Isle of Wight run by a, a guy called Ross Doig and his wife, Sundra. And they were in the process of joining. And he, he rang me and said, we're looking going down this route. What do you think? And I said, well, I'm about six weeks behind you, but I'm on the same flight path. And, and I think what people kind of saw was, you know, if that opinionated, cantankerous Romney can work within this group, then maybe it might work for me. And I think there is or was a cohort of people of about my age who were nearing that stage of retirement. If they built their businesses up, they built their businesses up and they were all going to have to find a way out fairly quickly. And, and it doesn't take Brain of Britain to look at What's happened with dentists, vets, architects, lawyers, there's been this conglomeration and, and, and merger and acquisition and recreation of brand within almost all elements of professional practice. And it's got harder and harder to start a practice from scratch. It's not impossible, but it's got harder. And one of the key things, and I've done lectures on this over the years, is how you go about differentiating yourself. I mentioned that I don't have a side to how multiple practice works or, or my, my colleagues that work in that environment, but I do want to be able to say I'm different, and this is what I'm really good at. I think it has to be accepted that with a number of notable exceptions, our local spec service is one, a guy called Andy Britton and Carmarthen is another. These are really, really top flight people, and there are plenty of them within the group. But at the end of the day, what the public position is a brand that is a national brand. And you see it on all sorts of rugby pitch hoardings and, and, and cricket pitch hoardings and goodness knows what, it's a national brand. So how do we maintain that differentiation whilst having the supportive background for HR, the regulations that surround trying to stay on top of governance, for example, how you deal with things like pensions rules and all all of those sort of elements. And then the real crux is we thought we were very good as a big practice. We thought we were very good at getting good service, and that's probably true, but good pricing, that's probably less true, of our major suppliers. And it was a real shock, a real revelation that at the minute that we joined the HG group, we saw about an 8% uplift in our gross margin, which dropped straight to the bottom line. So. Our profitability went very high and stayed there. It changed my dynamic with my patients. 
Because as anybody in a practice setting knows, and this even happens in the multiple groups, you come out in between, if you're a senior partner there or, 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 or the boss, you come out from an eye exam and you're going to have somebody sometimes waiting on the landing saying, oh, look, we've got a question about when you've done this handover, we've got a question about such and such as holiday leave allowance or, or somebody's pension plan or, or there's a supplier that thinks they haven't been paid or we're querying this invoice. And to be able to walk out of the consulting room and say to someone, can you ring the office in Darwin and get the support off the HG, HR team or the marketing team um, or, the, or the purchasing team and then come back to a really right decision? It means my focus with the patients has been much, much more to the fore. As a partner and a, and a shareholder, it's improved my relationship on the grassroots ground floor with the patients. And I think that is something that kind of surprised me a little bit. So that's kind of a bit of a long story as to how it, how it worked. And it, it works on, at the first level, knowing people and trusting people and trusting relationships that you've built up over a number of years. You can't just walk in and sell your practice to someone that you really don't know. At least I, I think that would be a, a poor idea. And I think one of the other final things I would say on that on that score is that when you are doing some sort of share purchase plan, you have to negotiate your own contract for your own employment afterwards. That's a bit of a challenge. I've never done that before, but we, we managed, we got through it. When you're doing this kind of share purchase element, you're given an option as to how long is that period of time that you're going to be part of the system. In other words, it's not beyond the wit of man to find a business where you sell a proportion of your business and the deal is that you stay in for, let's say, three years, four years, five years, whatever. But within six months, you're falling out because it's like somebody else is playing with your train set and they're kind of moving the, moving the carriages around and doing this differently, etc. And I needed to make sure that there was enough time that was going to work for them, but there was enough time that was going to work for me. And we settled on a two-year cycle. That two-year cycle ended in December 22. We're now almost December 23. So that's three years in. And we haven't fallen out. We've gone from strength to strength. We are putting our information about into the HG group, the, the CT event that was run in Bolton in September. You know, I was part of that. I'm, I'm part of a kind of, I suppose, what you might call a semi-non-exec role that tries to sit as um, almost like a kind of non-corporate interface between what is a corporate structure, but down to the individual partnership. Because the strength of our group is the ownership is, is shared. The benefits are shared, the risks are shared, and that's how it works. It's nice that we're sharing knowledge as well. I mean, our practice, for example, set up a dry eye clinic recently, and my DO was talking to someone in your practice about, so well, what, what order do you do these things in? And just getting those hints and tips. So it's like, you know, peer review from a distance. But yeah, we're really grateful for that. To wrap things up, if you, if you had 30 seconds to talk to the next generation of optometrists, what would you say? Oh, it, embrace all the higher qualifications you possibly can. Um, and try and persuade people to fund you for it and try and make a return on the back of it. So, you know, your fee structure should go up uh, if you are a more valuable and differentiated, more highly qualified individual. And don't accept going into hospitals and an HES clinic as a volunteer to deliver these things. Go into it as an advanced healthcare practitioner working alongside your medical colleagues, 
delivering things that you can deliver. I wish it was 30 years ago and I could start all over again. The pathway would not necessarily be very different, but we would be so much further along the line that I could get to where I want to go. Because I think we've got a hugely superb future ahead of us. Nick, I think that's the perfect place to to finish. I'm I'm sure we could talk for you know at least another hour, but thank thank you very much for giving up your time and and for sharing your wisdom and an insight over the past hour or so. I, I do love talking about general things, but there's nothing a bloke likes more than talking about himself. <laughs> well, well, that's why you're here, Nick. <laughs>